last week, Jenna, on the podcast, started our new series. We actually start the series uh, on the Bible study podcast most times, not just in the sermon in this room. And uh, she started the series for us with a run-through uh, of the whole story up to Judges, beginning all the way back in Genesis. And here we are, entering the promised land. And Ben said in his sermon last week, Right at the beginning of the book of Judges, just before it, in fact, a pattern starts to form. You have syncretism, that is the the mingling or the the combining of God with other gods. That's the thing that's described for us in the psalm that we just read together. And from syncretism, we get apostasy, which is abandoning God altogether. Then comes distress, a crisis point, crying out to the Lord and rescue by the God of grace. And if you look around at any of the commentaries on Judges, including the really wonderful summary that you'll find in the ESV Study Bible, or you just look around at how other churches have preached a a series like this, certainly one of the most popular images is a cycle of sin, or, or actually a spiral of sin, with the same mistakes having even more destructive results every single time they're committed. You get this idea of of syncretism, apostasy, crisis, uh, crying out and and rescue. But our angle for this series is actually the idea of correcting our spiritual vision. So instead of merely looking at what's going on in the book of Judges and observing this cycle or spiral of sin, we're going to be asking, what can we learn from it? So the graphic for our series, uh, the one on the bulletin cover, and you have access to this online, is actually inspired by a refrain that you will find at the very end of the book. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What can we learn from the cycle of sin? How can we correct our spiritual vision a little bit? Like them, the question for us as we go through the book of Judges is simply, are we going to follow our own blinkered view of what it looks like to be secure and to flourish and to prosper, or are we willing to come to church and get our prescription just tweaked a little bit until at last we can see not what's right in our own eyes, but what in fact is right in God's? Judges chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. So we have 12 tribes of Israel. We have the covenant people of the covenant God. They are about to occupy the covenant land. And as they occupy the covenant land, the enemies need to be driven out. And it's really simple. God says, this is all for you. This land is yours. I have been planning this through eternity, and your obedient response to my provision, your covenant response to this covenant land is simply to go through it and remove from it anything that is not of me. Purify it. Mark it out as mine. The covenant land is a holy land, just as the covenant God is a holy God, and all of these other cultures that lived in the land and occupied it before them had their own gods, and they had their own ideas of what holiness looked like. They had their own moral codes, and they had their own lens through which they viewed the world. 
often what they said was good, God says is evil. They did abominable things in the land. They used people like toys. They communed with the dead. They sacrificed their own children to their gods. And the Lord's instructions as they enter this land are more than clear. That kind of thing does not belong in my holy land. Neither do the people that do these things. So fast forward to verse 27, just as Robert did in the reading. Manasseh, one of the tribes, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, the only pronounceable village they had, I think, or the inhabitants of Iblim, or however they say it, and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. They do a 99% job, or I don't know, a 50-50 job. I don't know the actual stats, but they do a partial job. 60-40, I don't know. They leave some people. That's the point. Why? Because they have a better idea. Verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. We could use these guys, they say. You know, sure, they kill their kids, and they sleep with anything that moves, and then they sleep with things that they've killed. They're evil, but they could tread our grapes. They could work our fields. They could build stuff for us. We could use them. We could make some booze and kind of sit down on the beach with one of those coconut things and a straw while they do all the work, and we could watch in a deck chair. That sounds fun. They're not the only tribe thinking like this. They're not the only tribe improving upon the commands of God. Because in their own eyes, they've come up with something better. Verse 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza. So the Canaanites lived in Giza among them. That's an interesting twist. Because now it's not the evil guys over there in the evil village. But it's the evil guys in here in our village intermingled with us. They're living together. They're part of one another's lives. The people mixed with each other. The gods mixed with each other. The religion mixed with each other. The ideas mixed with each other. Their lenses mixed with each other. And now they're no longer looking at the world in the way that God told them to look at it. Zebulun, verse 30, forced labor. Asher, verse 31, cohabitation. Naphtali, verse 33, little bit of both. You see all of these tribes, one by one, improving, improving in some way upon what God said to do, doing a version of what God said. Why? Because in their own idea, in their own eyes, it felt better. When I was at seminary, and you were at seminary with me, love, our principal, George Cavour, told this story, didn't he, of ministry in India. And there was a girl in the village where they lived who was heavily demonized. And so they called George in to pray for the girl. And when he arrived at the home, he saw all sorts of Christian artifacts, crosses and Bibles and, and things, on a shelf. But lined up among them on the shelf were all of these idols and icons and, and, and things of other faiths mixed up with them. And George said to them before he prayed for the girl, I need to ask you, do you trust in God completely? Because God will not help you until you trust in him. And uh, he was being kind, he was being polite. Uh, these 
things that they had going on weren't just a barrier to what God wanted to do, but I think quite probably the cause of their problems as well. But that's not how you minister to people in a place like that. And he said, why don't you think about it? I know these things are important to you, but please think about it. Pray about it. Will you remove them all tonight and have me back tomorrow? And they said yes. So the next day he returned, and indeed all the guards and the clutter and the trinkets and the gilded rubbish had been removed, and he prayed for the girl again, and she was not healed. And uh, he just felt the Lord saying to him at this point, ask if they've kept anything else behind at all. And they assured him. They said, no, there's nothing. We've got rid of it all. And so he prayed all afternoon, and uh, he felt discouraged, nothing really improved and he left but as he was walking away he said the father of the household the husband came running to him alone and said pastor I have to confess to you my wife has in fact kept one of her gods she's hidden it under the bed and she begged me not to tell you but I'm desperate George returned to the house they threw it away they prayed for the girl and she was healed it's that simple and in the same way, as the people in this land, the people in the holy land, mingle the gods of the land with the true God, and they, and they mix, and they syncretize, they don't improve a thing. They certainly don't improve their chances of prospering. It is not a better plan. In fact, it is the cause of their crisis. Now, we might look at this pattern in Judges. And, and the setting of Judges. Or we might look at George's story from India, and you might well say, well, where's the relevance to us? We, we don't live back then. We don't have golden calves to Baal, and we don't have Asherah poles and, and fertility uh, idols underneath every tree in high place. Um, we don't live in a modern polytheistic culture either, uh, a, a culture that's maybe more Hindu in nature or something like that. Uh, but I think it was Simon and Garfunkel who once observed... <laughs> The people bowed and prayed to a neon god they'd made. All those ancient idols have their contemporary counterparts. There are things we trust alongside God. There are backup plans hidden under the bed. We have those things. Pensions, properties, investments, insurances. Zooming out, perhaps, from our own personal finances and homes, to a national scale, political parties, causes, flags to wave. Many have described some of the strident campaigns of the last 10 years uh, as almost religious in zeal. I'd suggest to you that alongside these contemporary counterparts to the ancient gods, we have now a range of what we might call digital gods as well, not neon gods, but digital ones. Do you panic when you lose your cell phone? Do you feel that same anxiety if you forget your morning prayers or to have a quiet time with the Lord? Often the thing that captivates our hearts today is a device of some kind that was meant to set us free. It's a thing that was supposed to work for us and we find ourselves chasing after it, just as the Canaanites were meant to work for Manasseh. It's only a matter of time before that situation is switched. 
This happens to Dan in verse 34, the tribe of Dan. The people of the tribe of Dan, the Amorites, pressed them back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. They didn't allow them. God sends them into the promised land to banish all of these people from the land, and within a few years, it's flipped. And now you have to stay in the hills, in the dust, while this lot down here farm all the fertile soil in the valley below. Their new friends with their new gods are driving them out. It's a counter-offensive by the enemy. The thing that was supposed to set them free now has them enslaved, or at least on the road toward it. So the pattern is established right here in Judges chapter 1. God has a plan. We have a better plan. It goes wrong. Judges chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. The angel of the Lord speaks for God might well be confused with God, might even, in fact, be a theophany of God himself. We're not sure. He is a terrifying being. As Ben said last week, to be in the presence of God is a terrifying thing. And the response to God or the response to an angel of God, particularly the angel of the Lord, is always fear. It doesn't get more frightening than this. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. Is this the angel speaking for God or God himself? It's not clear, but it's terrifying. In verse 2, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, not worship at them. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? What is this you've done? The same exact question that we find in Genesis chapter 3 when God confronts Adam and Eve. What have you done? The terrible question that the angel of the Lord asks them suddenly opens up their eyes to the reality of what they're doing. To all of the the cataclysmic, cascading consequences of the sin that they've been indulging. Sin feels absolutely amazing right up until the point that we do it. And then it feels absolutely terrifying and we can't believe what we've just done. Josephine's joining me in worship. I hope it comes out on the mic. Sin goes off like a hand grenade when we do it. It's not predictable. It's not proportionate. It's not fair. Sin has this habit of, of blasting holes in innocent hearts and flying over guilty heads. It's not a precision weapon. It's destructive. It's unpredictable. It's disproportionate. It's unreasonable. It's going to hurt someone. We don't always know who. And just as in the garden, there's a consequence to sin. There's a consequence of doing what is right in your own eyes. Verse 3. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. This is God speaking. But they shall become thorns in your side, and their God shall become a snare to you. Same language that we just heard in the psalm. A mokesh, a noose around the neck, or a hook in the nose, is what they shall be to you. You will become enslaved and addicted to the things that you were meant to rule. You'll be consumed by the things you were meant to consume. Even though, however, right here, there's a tiny kernel of hope. 
just a tiny, tiny glimpse of it. In the garden, the first promise that God makes is not to Adam or to Eve, but to the snake. I will crush your head in. In fact, actually, I will use the offspring of Adam and Eve to achieve my purposes, says God in the garden. God will always keep his promises to defeat his enemies. And God ultimately will defeat the last enemy of all, which is sin and its unholy bedfellow, death. And in verse 1, even here in the midst of their disobedience and sin, right as the pattern is established, the angel of the Lord reminds them of the covenant promise made by Yahweh himself. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God keeps his promises even though we break ours. There is always a way back with God. Ultimately, as the image on our bulletin cover depicts, the way back to God is always through the cross of Christ. It's always the gospel. The cross is the ultimate object of a properly corrected spiritual vision. The cross is a brutal and terrifying moment. To the naked human eye, uncorrected, it looks every bit as foolish as it looks harmful. But this brutal place on on Calvary's hill is the place where sin is done away with once and for all, 100%. Where God himself on our behalf, provides the faithful response that we've never quite managed for ourselves. God breaks the cycle of sin on the cross. It's ironic. It's deeply ironic. This terrifying theophany or angel of the Lord, this terrifying cross, this crisis, it's always the places and the strategies and the encounters that feel safest to us that become the most dangerous. And it is the places and strategies and encounters that feel the most dangerous that become the most safe. That's how it is with God. That's what only a Christian can see. That is the adjustment that the book of Judges seeks to make to our spiritual vision. Let's pray. Jesus, please continue to correct our vision of you And please continue to reveal yourself to us in grace. We do repent and lament our own sin and our own better plans and ways. And we do turn to you again, just as the people of God did again and again and again. We thank you, Lord, for your grace abounds and is always ready to meet us. You have, in fact, broken that cycle on the cross already. And we ask that as a people of God, We would live in that freedom and not the old ideas of freedom that we had before. In Jesus' name, amen.